Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, this past week I learned about a fascinating creature uh, called the immortal jellyfish. Yes, that's right, the immortal jellyfish. Uh, why is it called that? Well, this extremely small jellyfish has an amazing ability. If the jellyfish gets hurt or damaged, it shrinks itself into a small blob of jellyfish matter. And once it's a blob, it starts changing its adult jellyfish cells uh, back into baby jellyfish cells. And after a period of time, a newborn baby jellyfish emerges from that blob again. Hence the name Immortal uh, Jellyfish. That's pretty, pretty a fascinating ability. Well, I don't think anyone here would ever want to be a jellyfish. I'm sure many people would love to be able to uh, regenerate themselves like that, make themselves new. Everyone would love to find the fountain of youth. As people grow older, their bodies begin to break down. They feel the aches and pains of older age, and they want to be renewed, to be young and strong again. Now, that's physical renewal the physical renewal of a body, but there's something far more important than that. It's far more important to be renewed in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, to be made new again by God, to gain new desires, to submit your mind to what the Bible says, to have your will be brought in line with, with God's will. The good news is that this is what Jesus Christ is doing to all believers. This is what he's doing to us, renewing us. Jesus right now is in heaven, but he is focused on us all the time. From heaven, he is at work in us by the Holy Spirit to renew us so that we would live for God. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Christ our Savior is renewing us so that we live for God. We would live for God. We're going to look at three things. First of all, the certainty of this renewal. Secondly, the necessity of this renewal. And finally, the goal of this renewal. So Lord's Day 32 begins by emphasizing something the catechism has been emphasizing all along. Uh, we have been delivered from our misery by grace alone through Christ without any merit of our own. So we have received salvation apart from any of our work, any of our good works, apart from anything we have done. And to see this, look only at Ephesians 2. What does it say? You are by nature, you follow the ways of this world. You all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By nature, you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you were apart from Christ. But look at what God did to save us because of his great love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. God raised us up with Christ, and even He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Seated us with Christ in heaven. 
So God has done these things completely apart from anything we have done, apart from our works. After all, when did he make us alive together with Christ? Not when we were trying our best to be good people. No, when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 8 summarizes it clearly when it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Given that's the case, this is true. We might wonder, well, what about good works? How do they relate to the Christian life? Or as Lorsty 32 uh, puts it, if these things are true, why must we yet do good, good works? Why must we yet do good works? Why are good works necessary for Christians, for believers? I'll look at now at the answer the Catechism gives. Instead of pointing us to ourselves, it points us again to our Lord Jesus Christ. Why must we yet do good works? The answer Because Christ, having redeemed us with his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit to be his image. See, God in Christ has saved us apart from good works, but at the same time, he has also saved us for good works so that we might do them. So you have been saved without your good works, without anything you have done, and you have been saved so that you might do good works, so that you would live a life devoted to your Savior, to your God, in all holiness, righteousness, and goodness. See, we can speak about salvation in two different ways. First, there is salvation in the strict sense of the word, in that we have a new status with God in Christ. When we say we have been saved, what do we mean? Well, it means we have been reconciled to God. We've been brought into a friendly relationship with Him through Christ. It means we've been redeemed, bought with Christ's blood. It means we've been adopted freely as God's children by His grace. means we've been justified, counted righteous as if we've never had sinned. So, all those things describe salvation in the strict sense. All those things happen apart from anything we have done. They're based on the work of Christ for us. Well, the second way we can talk about salvation is in the broad sense. Not only has Christ saved us from God's punishment upon sin, but He is at work in us to cleanse us from the poison of ongoing sin in our hearts and in our lives. Christ is working to free us from that dreadful, awful awful slavery to sin and sinful desires. Think of these two senses of salvation with the following illustration. Think of someone who commits a series of horrible crimes, perhaps a serial killer. As a result of his crimes, a man gets thrown into prison for life. 
Well, imagine then that someone comes and graciously pays a penalty for him. They're going to serve his prison sentence in his place so that he doesn't have to do it. And that would be complete grace. He escaped the punishment of his crimes by the gracious work of someone else. But that's not the only thing the man needs. He also needs to be changed. After he's freed from prison, the man undergoes that transformation. He learns how to serve his neighbor in love instead of taking away his neighbor's life. And both aspects are beautiful. The man received a new lease on life. He's out of prison. He doesn't have to serve that sentence. But it's not good if he's freed from prison only to keep murdering people. That would not be good at all. And so in order for this to be a really good thing, the man's heart needs to be changed. And that's what we also need. We have been saved from that severe punishment of God upon sin, eternal death. Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath. That's what we were. But Christ stepped into our place and took that wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't have to take that punishment. But at the same time, if it's not good if we remain living an unchanged life full of sin, following the devil. But the good news is that Christ is also at work in us to change us. Because Christ is the one doing this work, it's impossible that true believers will not, would not be changed, would not begin living a new life to God. Christ himself says in Matthew 12, verse 33, make a tree good and its fruits will be good. And Christ, of course, is not speaking about trees. He's speaking about people. And Christ has given us a new nature. He's given us a good nature in himself. And so, because of that new nature, we will bear fruit to God. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Listen also again to Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And so that means we've been saved, right? Escaped death through the work of Christ. But it also means we will live new lives. We will. We've been raised with Christ. Verses 8 to 10 puts it like this, By grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's workmanship in Christ. He is working to change the lives and hearts of believers. That brings us to our second point, the necessity of this renewal. So having seen the certainty of our renewal in Christ, now let's look at the necessity of this renewal. So the catechism asks, can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent walk of life? That's the second 
question in Lord's Day 32, and the answer is this, by no means. Uh, scripture says that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, greedy person, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like shall inherit the kingdom of God. So how do we understand these words? Well, on this point, I really like what Reverend Arthur Van Delden from our sister churches in Australia, he writes about this. He says, what the Catechism is asking is, if we have been saved without doing any good works, can we say that good works are not necessary at all? And the answer of the Catechism is a resounding no. Good works are not necessary for salvation, but they are a necessary fruit of salvation. Those whom God redeems, He also renews so that they will certainly and unfailingly bear good fruit there can be no faith without fruit, for faith is living. And so, if there is no fruit in a person's life, it means that there is no faith, and so no salvation. So, he summarizes it like this, no man is saved, no person is saved because of good works, and that is certainly true. We're not saved because of our good works, but no one is saved also without good works. All believers will begin to live a new life. The scripture speaks uh, this way and in various places. Take only Jesus' words in Matthew 7, where he says, No one who says, to, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does will my Father who is in heaven. So, in other words, the Christian faith is not just mere talk. No, you can confess the name of Christ with your lips. You can't confess the name of Christ with your lips and meanwhile continually live as if you're an unbeliever. That's simply hypocrisy. And Christ preached against that quite a bit. Consider also Ephesians 5. Listen to what we read this. For you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Now li listen to what he says. Because of these things, the wrath of God is, is coming on this world. Because of those sins. And so if we know that, Right? If we know that, and we do know that from Scripture, then how can we just take part in those same sins with, without even a thought? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So we need to examine ourselves. Is there, is there any fear of, of the Lord before my eyes? Do I understand a God's judgment upon sin? You know, do I engage in these things as if it's no big deal and don't see the need to repent? Ephesians 5 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Or, in another way of putting it, uh, don't let anyone tell you, oh, it's no big deal. Keep living in sin and don't worry about it. Nothing will ever happen to you. No, says God in Scripture. A turn from your sin. 
That's what he says. Uh, Listen to 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. Or Romans 8, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so, we, as those who confess the name of Christ, we must turn from wickedness. Now, what is this a transformation look like in our lives? Well, if, again, we can turn to Ephesians 5. It, it lays us out so clearly in many wonderful ways. Listen to all the things it describes here. Uh, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, it says. You know, see your God, imitators of God. Imitate how God acts. Love what He loves. Hate what He hates. Pursue righteousness. Act justly. Love mercy. Be imitators of God. That's not all it says. It also says, walk in love. So, walking in love means a way of life. Living in a way that you build up your neighbor's life instead of tearing it down. Seeking your neighbor's good in all things. And just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, we also lay down our lives for others. Walk in love. That's not the only thing Ephesians 5 says. It also uh, commands us to cut out sin. It says sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as what's proper for the holy people of God. Not even named among you. Pretty strict, isn't it? That's not all it says. Ephesians 5 also says, replace the evil in your life with good. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, right? Remove the, the evil side, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Add to it the positive side. Fill your mind, your heart, and your words with thanksgiving. It's not all Ephesians 5 says. It also says, walk as children of the light. Well, how do we do that? Well, Scripture is the light. It gives us light. And here it says, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so we pursue these things, things that are good, things that are true and right and wholesome. Ephesians 5 goes on, keep a far distance from evil. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't be sucked into uh, the sin of this world. Stand firm. Instead, expose it for what it is, awful sin. Finally, it says, keep a sober mind. Be self-controlled. Right? It says, do not get drunk on wine or beer or whiskey or any other drink that will make you drunk. That is debauchery, sinful self-indulgence. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is just one chapter, Ephesians 5. This is the renewal. Christ is working in our hearts and lives. It's not done all at once, but an earnest beginning is made. 
And by God's grace, it will take hold more and more. That brings us to our last point. So having seen the certainty and necessity of our renewal, let's now look at the goal of Christ's renewal in us. And Lord's Day 32 describes four goals. We're going to look at each one of them. However, we're going to go in a slightly different order than uh, Lord's Day 32 uh, lists them. Verse 1 we're going to go over is this. Why must Christians do good works? Christians must do good works so that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. Remember again what Christ says in Matthew chapter 12, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. This means that the good fruit that arises out of our faith, it assures us that our faith is real. It's true, living. It's testifying to us that we have been renewed by Christ, that He is working in us by the Spirit, that we've been born again, that we've been raised up with Christ, as Ephesians 2 says. It's giving testimony all the time. And this can be very comforting. The good works we do, which flow from our faith in Christ, shows us our faith in Christ is real. We have a true and living faith, and so we can rejoice. Remember Ephesians 2, this is the gift of God, right? It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You have the gift of faith. So we know more and more, we have salvation, sure salvation in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to entering into eternal life because we believe in Him. Now, that indeed can be comforting and encouraging. However, I also want to point out one potential danger here. Uh, Sometimes Christians may think that since they are born again, they will easily overcome any and every sin. But Christians can face a very difficult battle against sin. This is a reality for believers. We are involved in a bitter struggle. There will be failures along the way. And what do we do then? Well, this is not to be fatalist, but it is meant to guard against a certain triumphalism that thinks living the Christian life will be easy. And if we go down that route, we may lose assurance when things get tough in the Christian life. So yes, we are assured of our faith by its fruits. However, we never make our fruit the basis of our acceptance with God. That is based completely on the finished work of Christ. And so we always come to God in Christ alone and through His work alone. So that's the first goal, that we'd be assured of our faith by its fruits. The second goal of good works is this. Christ, having redeemed us by His blood, also renews us by His Spirit to be His image. The goal of our faith is not only that we would live for God, but that we would become more like God. That we would become more like our Lord Jesus Christ every day. This is what God desires in us. God is at work in us by the Holy Spirit to make us like Himself. 
Again, this is what God so much desires for His children. He wants His children to reflect His perfect image. He wants you to reflect His perfect image. He wants us to follow the perfect example of Christ who gave Himself up for us. That's who God is, a giving God, a giving God. Think of how God the Father said of His Son, This is my Son whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. God's so delighted in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. He, he had to tell the world, this is my Son, my boy, my eternal Son. I'm so pleased with Him giving up His life for sinners. And this nicely transitions into the third goal of this renewal. We do good works that with our whole lives we show ourselves thankful to God for His saving benefits. Just as God the Father was pleased with His Son for how He lived and served, so we can please God by our lives. You know, sometimes I think we might get the wrong impression that it's impossible for us to live a life pleasing to God. After all, people might argue, aren't our best works, even our best works, uh, defiled with sin? And if our best works are defiled with sin, uh, how can they be pleasing to God? God hates sin. But this is simply wrong thinking. Why, why do we emphasize that even the Christian's best works are defiled with sin? It's so that we would ne- never make our good works the basis for our acceptance with God. Because that is... That will destroy the faith. Our good works are never the basis for our acceptance with God. That's why we emphasize that. However, this doesn't mean that God is somehow angry with our good works because they are tainted with sin still. In fact, far from it. Our good works done in faith, even though they are tainted with sin, are delightful to the Father. They are sanctified by His grace in Jesus Christ. God delights in seeing His children live for Him. Live a life of love, sacrificing themselves for their neighbor. As Ephesians 5 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, a fragrant offering, it says, of Christ's sacrifice. It means that the sacrifice of Christ was, it was pleasing to God. It was like a, a pleasing smell, a delightful aroma to God the Father. Yes, our good works need the sanctifying work of Christ, but in Christ Jesus, through faith in Him, Our life of love delights the Father in a a similar way. It's like a beautiful, sweet-smelling perfume. He loves them. And isn't that an encouragement to do more and more good works, to live a life of love? God is pleased when you devote yourself to good works. 
So that's the third goal, to live a life pleasing to God. That brings us to the fourth and final goal of this renewal, that by our good, um, godly walk of life we may win our neighbor for Christ. See, the way that you live your life as a Christian, it can either draw someone towards Christ or it can push someone away from Him. Do you know what is probably the number one thing that will kill your witness to our Lord Jesus Christ? It's hypocrisy. If you live a hypocritical life from day to day, if you live contrary to your confession as a Christian, confessing the name of Christ with your mouth, but denying it by your actions, by your words, you're only going to push people away from the Christian faith and how terrible that is. By our hypocrisy, we could end up pushing someone away from the Christian faith. So that's the negative. But on the flip side, there's the positive. We can attract someone to Christ by living consistently as Christians, loving life of sacrifice. And that means speaking as Christ wants us to speak. It means treating our neighbor as Christ wants us to treat them. It means being committed to living a life of self-sacrificial love. And if we do that, we will make the teaching of Christ attractive. It's true, there's no guarantee in this. Jesus warned also that unbelievers would, would hate us. But at the same time, the Bible shows that living consistently as a Christian has an attractive uh, effect. Let me give you one example. Think of Paul and Silas in prison in Acts 16. There they were, stuck in this dungy prison cell. But still, there they sat, singing songs. Singing songs of praise to their God, to their Savior. What a witness. Never before had that prison been such a cheerful place and all the prisoners were listening to them sing. But then, during that time, suddenly there was a violent earthquake and everyone's chains became loose. But even though Paul and Silas could have escaped, they stayed right there. And then the Philippian jailer came in. He saw they were still there and he cried out, What must I do to be saved? He became a Christian that very night. He could see there's something different about these people, Paul and Silas. Here they are in prison singing songs of praise to God. And they're thinking about their neighbor. A life these Christians live was like nothing he had ever seen before. So he asks, what must I do to be saved? By the way you live as a Christian, you can attract someone to the teaching of Christ. And by God's grace, they too will receive salvation and this renewal also. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word. We will sing together hymn 72. We will sing all five stanzas. <laughs>